Please remain standing and turn with me to Genesis 40, verse 20. I was struck thinking about <clears throat> Paul, uh, Paul, who's going to be left in custody through a change of governors in Caesarea at the end of today's passage with the similarity with Joseph, who was stuck in prison for a similar period of time, um, while the Lord's plan continued to unfold for him. Genesis 40, starting at verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged to the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him after two whole years. Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. We'll stop there. I won't read Pharaoh's dream, but just that uh, um, memory of Joseph who had interpreted those prisoners' dreams, and yet they forgot him. They forgot him, and it was two whole years before the Lord finally opened the opportunity for Joseph to be elevated uh, to the court of Pharaoh. Well, let's turn now to Acts 24. We'll read the entire chapter. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace and Since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple. But we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience, 
toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me, or, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control, And the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul. In prison. You may be seated. When I was an intern in Wheaton, Illinois, uh, near the end of our time there, one of the families in the church, out of the blue, gave me something that I've treasured uh, ever since. It was a a small uh, bronze coin. Um, in this simple encasement of paper and plastic. And on the paper was handwritten the words, Pruta of Felix. Um, I brought it with me, so I'm going to show it, have some show and tell during Sunday school later on for anybody who's interested. Um, and since then, I've learned that a Pruta was a, a very common coin in Roman Palestine in the first century. Uh, a loaf of bread cost about 10 Pruta. Uh, prutas or prutote. Uh, and my pruta, the one this family gave me, assuming, assuming the label is correct, I don't have any reason to doubt it, although I haven't taken it to an expert to have it checked out. Maybe one day I'll know a coin expert who can help me with that. Um, it would have been minted, apparently, during the time and office of Felix, the governor or the procurator of the Roman province of Judea. Um, and it, to me, it's just a, a helpful uh, kind of grounding reminder um, of the way that the Bible is set in real time and space and history. And it's delightful just to have a piece of that history um, to kind of hold in my hand and remind me of how concrete and, and physical and real the history that's being described in the book of Acts is. Uh, now, as you know, um, the modern state of Israel today uh, does not have its um, capital city, its seat of government in Jerusalem, right? The, the government is based in Tel Aviv, so it's kind of the historic spiritual capital 
and then there's the political capital. Well, the situation in the first century was something like that. Jerusalem was the city with the temple. It was the the historic capital of Israel's ancient kings. Uh, But the Roman political capital for Judea as a a Roman province uh, was not in Jerusalem. It was in Caesarea. Caesarea being a a port city uh, right on the Mediterranean uh, coast. Um, And that is where the tribune who was uh, watching over the temple, Claudius Lysias, in the previous chapter, uh, arranged for Paul to be sent. You remember that that late-night, secretive, high-security prisoner transfer from Jerusalem to Caesarea that protected Paul uh, from the conspiracy that had been hatched to murder him if he stayed in Jerusalem. And so we pick up here in chapter 24 with Paul now about to appear before the Roman governor, Felix, who's going to hear the charges of the Jewish leaders uh, against him, against Paul. So let's take this chapter in three parts. The first one is going to be the, the prosecutor's polish, verses 1 through 9. Second will be the prisoner's defense, verses 10 to 21. And then last, the politician's fears, verses 22 to 27. All right, so at the beginning of chapter 24, then, um, we find that uh, Paul's opponents, the the, uh, Jerusalem Jewish leadership, have uh, lawyered up, you could say. Um, They've hired this professional named Tertullus. Uh, to prosecute their case against Paul. Someone who can play the game, who can, who can take all of the, the kind of rage and the, the reactionary chaos of the crowd, and he can transform that into the, the cold, calculated, sharp edge of uh, expert litigation to try to finally get through something that will stick with Paul. Uh, against Paul. This is, this is what Paul is up against. And you can hear from the very beginning of Tertullus's speech the kind of uh, uh, rhetorical conventions that he's using, which, which sound pretty flattering, you know, as he's trying, trying to ingratiate himself and his clients with Felix. Although, as one writer points out, it's not just flattery. It's not just, yeah, it's not just flattery. There's, there's a point to the specific things that he says in the way that he compliments Felix, since through you we enjoy much peace. And by your foresight, he says, reforms are being made for this nation. Compare that with the accusations that he makes against Paul. This man is a plague, he says, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. He's a ringleader, he says, of a sect. So think about what is the job of a Roman provincial governor? Um, and one big part of it, and this is not hard to imagine, you don't have to know a lot about Roman history to think about this, a big part of a provincial governor's job would be to keep the peace, to keep there from being uh, chaos and revolts and uprisings and, and uh, disturbances in the region under his control. Since through you, we enjoy much peace, Tertullus says to Felix. But here's a man who is threatening that peace. Remember from last time that we said that if the Jewish leaders were going to get an accusation against Paul to stick with the Romans, they were going to either need to show that he was a threat to Roman rule, or at least that he was a threat to the public order, 
to the peace that Roman rule was supposed to bring and preserve throughout the empire, that famous Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Um, and that's the excuse of all empires, right, for expansion and, and tyranny, right? We will bring order to the chaos, uh, and that, that the, the chaos that comes with um, you know, freedom and independence and things like that. Um, and Rome is supposed to provide that order, and Paul is threatening, apparently, supposedly, to take that order away. Um, in the previous chapter, though, remember that Paul's uh, strategy, Paul's strategy was to insist that the issue between him and the Jerusalem leaders was not a political issue or, an inher- or one that was inherently disruptive of the public order. Instead, it was basically, in its essence, theological. It was a matter of how to read and interpret correctly the Old Testament scriptures that they both claimed to accept, that all faithful Jews claimed to accept. And, and that's why Paul cried out in the middle of his hearing in the Sanhedrin that it's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Now, as we're going to see, uh, Paul continues in this chapter with that same line of defense now before Felix. What we find is that unlike the Jerusalem leaders, Paul has not lawyered up. He's going to represent himself here. Uh, but you, know, you can also see that Paul is uh, no slouch when it comes to the, the conventions. Uh, of the uh, courtroom and uh, of Roman rhetoric. He's had a, a, a solid education, and he knows what this situation calls for, uh, like Tertullus. In fact, you can see a parallel. Paul also opens w- with an expression of appreciation for Felix's work as governor in a way that also communicates Paul's expectations for what Felix then ought to do in this Situation: how he ought to hear his case, and that is with the fairness and unbiased justice of an experienced and qualified judge. Not too much to ask for, you might hope, although it turns out perhaps it is in Felix's case. And anyway, Paul starts out by saying, first of all, I, 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 to begin with, I, I just came to Jerusalem uh, less than two weeks ago after living abroad for several years. And what that goes to show is that Paul could not have been secretly plotting and and organizing some kind of underground operation to to agitate the crowds and start some kind of revolution in Jerusalem simply because he hadn't been in Jerusalem long enough to accomplish something like that. His enemies are giving him too much credit (laughs) in that case. Um, is is kind of the point there. uh, And he goes on also to point out um, some facts that are really important. Facts are stubborn things, right? Tertullus has attempted basically a character assassination by saying, this is the kind of person, Felix, this is the kind of person who, who stirs up riots everywhere he goes. And, and Paul says, well, here are the facts. The facts are that when I was arrested, I was not doing anything like that. I wasn't even engaging in a debate. I wasn't teaching in the temple. I was, I was just there for an act of worship like any other Jewish person. Which is true. That's what, why Paul was in the temple that day. They did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd. Not in the temple, not in the synagogues, not in the city, none of these places. That's not what I was doing. 
Then, in a neat kind of rhetorical move, Paul says, here's what I will confess. He's not, of course, about to confess to a crime, but he's saying, here's something I will confess to you. And here we see something that that really is a pattern in Paul's um, trials. Paul doesn't treat his trials merely as opportunities to defend himself. That's not the point for Paul. Paul's primary interest is not in getting himself acquitted. In fact, Jesus has already told him in chapter 23, you're going to end up going all the way to Rome in this legal process. So, so Paul knows right off the bat, the point here is not to get acquitted in the court of Felix. He's, he's not trying to get himself off the hook. These trials, Paul sees as gospel opportunities. That's what they are for Paul. These are chances for him to lay out to new audiences the same message that's motivated his entire ministry. And here he begins to lay it out for Felix. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which which they call a sect, in other words, it's, it's not a sect, he's kind of answering in passing that charge of being a ringleader of a div- divisive uh, splinter group of Judaism. According to the way which they call a sect, I worship whom? I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets. And here again you see um, Paul hammering away at that heart of his defense, that he's simply trying to be faithful to the scriptures, uh, the same scriptures that his opponents believe and embrace. I have a hope in God which these men themselves accept, referring to the Pharisees, that there will be a resurrection, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And so, for that reason, he's saying, I, because of that coming resurrection of the just and the unjust, that's why I always take pains to have a clear conscience. Unlike the picture that Tertullus has been trying to paint of me, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Uh, because, because I have a, a higher motivation for being an upright citizen than the fear of this court. I am living with an awareness, governor, that I will stand one day before a court higher than yours, and that is before the judgment seat of God at the resurrection one day. I am a person living as though I will one day give an account to God. Now, you see how in, in doing this, Paul has not only defended himself, which he has done, he has defended himself, <clears throat> but he's also gotten straight to the heart of the gospel. The resurrection of the dead. And that's the the first step then toward all of the many gospel conversations he's going to end up having with Felix and his wife later in the chapter. Now Paul's defense goes on, verse 17. Uh, Verse 17, he's basically saying, let's let's set the record straight now, Governor. What really happened on that day that I got arrested? What actually happened that day? Well, to begin with, why was I in Jerusalem? Well, it wasn't to stir up trouble. The reason I was in Jerusalem was to bring alms to my nation. I was on a mercy mission to present uh, and, to, and to present offerings. And this is something we haven't talked a lot about up until now because uh, the book of Acts has not focused on it. But if you uh, compare this period of time in Paul's life uh, with his letters that correspond in the chronology of his life to it, what you find is that um, towards the end of Paul's uh, so-called third missionary journey, <clears throat> Paul was collecting in various cities uh, contributions uh, from the churches of Greece and Macedonia and Asia Minor, uh, contributions for the relief and support 
of the much poorer church in Jerusalem, where there were some great financial needs that those churches abroad were in a good position to help with. And this comes up in uh, near the end of Romans. It comes up in uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, these, these mentions of this collection that he, he took up in Galatia, in Macedonia, in Corinth, um, uh, possibly in other places, to be brought back at the end of that third missionary journey to Jerusalem. And this was a big part of the reason for Paul's return to Jerusalem, in spite of all of those warnings that he received along the way. It was to follow through on delivering that collection of gifts that had been entrusted to him by all of those other churches. And that now becomes part of his defense here before Felix. Why was I in Jerusalem? It was to bring alms to my nation, to bring this financial support from abroad uh, to uh, these my fellow Jews, um, particularly the Jewish Christians. But still, the, the, the point is... That's why I came to Jerusalem, not to stir up trouble. And then he goes on. So now let's talk about what I was doing in the temple, particularly that day. Why was I there? They claim, verse 6, that I was trying to profane the temple, although they haven't given any evidence of this because there isn't any evidence to support that. It's completely speculation. They assumed that. Remember how they assumed that because they had seen Greeks with him out in the city, well, he must have brought them into the temple, although he had not done that. The fact is that they found me in the temple purified without any crowd or tumult. Remember that Paul had actually gone to the temple to participate in a purification ceremony uh, for um, or the, the, the vow completion ceremony for some fellow Jewish Christians, specifically to show his connection with the Jewish community, to prove that he wasn't a radical trying to overturn and destroy uh, Jewish culture. And so he was actually participating in something that was the opposite of what they were accusing him of. Now, the riot, and there, there was a riot, of course, can't deny that, but it certainly was not started by Paul. It was started by the Jews from Asia, who aren't even here in the court accusing him. It's interesting how he kind of interrupts himself. But some Jews from Asia, but then he just, he leaves it implied that, of course, the riot was their fault, but he doesn't go out and say that. It's, it's, he's, he leaves it implied. Instead, he, he turns a corner and says, and, and those people who actually um, were, were stirring up the trouble, they're the ones who were accusing me of profaning the temple, but they're not even here in court today. This is actually a, a great offense, the commentators point out, under Roman law to make an accusation against somebody, but then to fail to appear in court to um, explain the accusation uh, and could bring great penalties on a person. The people who are here in court on this day, who are accusing Paul, the only thing they've actually seen is what happened in the Sanhedrin when Paul cried out, making a theological point about the resurrection of the dead. They didn't even see the riot happen. So their case is just falling to pieces here. And notice how Paul, of course, sneaks in another reference to the resurrection Again, he's constantly working to keep the gospel center stage. Paul wants to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And, and if a Roman courtroom is the stage on which to present that message, then so be it. But come what may, Paul is going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus as the heart of his message. And I, I think that's one, thing, one of the practical things that we can learn from Paul in this chapter is, is that that is his primary interest. That's his motivation for everything that he does. And he sees this trial as a gospel opportunity. Why? Because he's always looking for gospel opportunities. 
He's always expecting them. He's always assuming that wherever Christ has placed me, he has placed me there to speak of him. And eventually that place he knows is going to be Rome. But today, today it's Caesarea. Today it is this courtroom of Governor Felix. That's where I am today. And so that must be today's opportunity to speak of Christ and his resurrection from the dead. Learning to look for gospel opportunities, to expect gospel opportunities, and to see the challenges and the mishaps and and inconveniences of life as gospel opportunities. That's something that we can all learn and grow in and see modeled here in Paul. If If we feel like we're not having opportunities to speak of Christ with people, could it be because we're not looking for... We're not expecting them to happen. We're not expecting those opportunities to take place. And so we're missing them when they do. We want to be people who who look for those openings that Christ is, in fact, giving us to speak of his resurrection. And and people who see in our day-to-day the gospel opportunities that Christ has put there. Okay. Now, as it turns out, um, Felix could tell pretty much right away that Paul was not guilty of anything deserving the punishment of Roman law. Sadly, though, instead of acting as a judge, Felix acts much more in politician mode in response to this trial. Now, according to historians, uh, as commentator Ben Withering points out, um, Governor Felix at this time was already on sort of thin ice Politically, he had um, engaged a pretty heavy-handed rule over Judea. The Jews had, ar- the Jewish leadership had already complained to Rome about him, and if, and so if he gave them more reasons to be upset with him, then he might find himself in in pretty bad trouble with um, the, the Home Office, we could say, back in Rome. And so he he doesn't want to uh, just let Paul go because he's afraid of the Jews, of the Jewish leadership. On the other hand, he also knows that Paul is innocent. And so he sort of, he sort of dithers and tries to, to kind of play both sides. He hears Paul out. He has a series of various serious conversations with him about the gospel. But in the end, he just stays in this, this limbo of indecision. And he ends his tenure as governor with Paul still in prison. A great injustice against Paul. Although, of course, we know it is all part of Christ's plan to get Paul to Rome. Um, all along, also, you see, uh, to add to the injustice, you see that all along, what he was really hoping for is that Paul would just pay him a bribe. Uh, to get, to, you know, don't have a get-out-of-jail-free card, you can pay your 50 bucks. Um, which, of course, Paul was never going to do. It would be a great injustice, even a sin on Paul's part. And plus, Paul wasn't trying to get out of jail anyway. He was trying to get to Rome. Now, as we near the end here, I want to draw your attention more specifically to Felix's response to the gospel message he heard from Paul in verses 24 and 25. So after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, it says, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him uh, speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And it says, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. And he sent Paul away. Apparently, to some degree, Felix felt a sense of conviction. 
of of the danger that he would one day be in on that day of judgment if Paul is telling him the truth. What is Felix's response to that sense of conviction, to that pricking of his conscience? This is something really important to learn from this man. His response to that pricking of his conscience is avoidance and delay. Avoidance and delay. One of two of the most deadly responses to the pricking of your conscience that you can give. And and in the end, what you see is that Felix completely squanders this opportunity to turn in faith to the only one who is able to preserve sinners through that final judgment, and that, of course, is Jesus. But he doesn't turn to Jesus. Instead, he puts him off. And see, this is a real danger for all kinds of people who are familiar with Jesus and the gospel, but who spend their lives procrastinating on that decisive step of turning to him in faith, turning their back on sin and self and submitting to his lordship, receiving his salvation. I want all of you to understand here clearly this morning that being close to Christ, being close to the church, does not save you. Hearing the gospel, hearing it often, um, even being really interested in it and even moved by it emotionally, none of those things save anybody. Only faith in Jesus Christ will save you. Only that an active heart response of belief and submission, of receiving the promises and placing yourself under the authority of the one who lived and died and rose again, not for those who are intrigued by him and interested in him and know a lot about him, for those who entrust themselves to him without holding back, receive his promises, submit to his lordship, One last thing to observe about Felix. At first, it seems that Felix avoids coming to Jesus um, because he's too afraid of the message that Paul is preaching. He was alarmed, so he sent Paul away. But in the end, what becomes apparent about Felix is that he did not fear the final judgment too much, but too little. a place where Strider says to Frodo, are you frightened? Not nearly frightened enough. What is the evidence in Felix's life that he's not nearly frightened enough by Paul's message of the judgment to come? Well, it's that apparently when it comes down to it, he's more afraid of something else. He's more afraid of the Jerusalem leaders and their clout with the home office back in Rome. I've heard it said very aptly that what you fear is what you will worship. What you fear is what you will worship. And our, our life choices are often shaped by whatever it is we fear the most. And I ask yourself that, what do I fear the most? And is it, does that match reality? what I really ought to fear the most if I'm honest about the way the world really is. And you see the scriptures teach us that the, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That, that healthy, reverent 
realization and acknowledgement of his perfect and total power and justice and of the, the depth of our own guilt and the, the, our great need for forgiveness and salvation through Christ. And yet so often we spend our lives being afraid of things that we shouldn't be afraid of. When the things that we should be afraid of, we simply avoid and delay thinking about because it's too hard and uncomfortable. And the result is that we live our lives fearing other people, fearing their judgments about us, more than we fear God and his judgment. Felix ought to have listened to those words of the Lord Jesus when Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I say to you, sorry, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. There's a book by Ed Welch with the wonderful title, When People Are Big and God is Small. It's a reminder that when people's opinions loom large for us, God's opinion will not matter to us as it should. We'll be bound by our fears and our insecurities. We will make foolish and destructive choices, and Felix is a prime example of this in the Bible. But you see, the opposite of that is also true. And when we learn to fear God according to his word, when we learn to reverence his power and his authority and to remember his coming judgment and consider his perspective, his evaluation, his assessment of our lives and our words and our actions is the most important of all to us. What freedom that has the power to give to us What freedom from our slavery to the opinions of other people. A freedom that Felix never came to know, it seems. But there's someone in this passage who had come to know that freedom, and that's the Apostle Paul. His every word and choice in this part of Acts shouts it out that God had come to be so big in Paul's field of vision that people had become small. That everyone else and their opinions of him had shrunk just to insignificance by comparison in his spiritual vision. I just want to encourage you this morning that in Christ you can experience that freedom too. But only if God is big to you and you fear him more than you fear anything else. That is the only way to be freed of your fears. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for yet another episode in the life and trials of Paul. Thank you again for everything that he endured um, in communion with our Savior Jesus, who suffered for us uh, all the more greatly than this servant of his. Lord, we're so thankful for Paul and for what you teach us through his trials. We pray that, unlike Felix, but like Paul, that you would be big to us in our imagination and in our spiritual vision, that we would fear you more than we fear anything else. That we would not put off closing with Christ and delay 
and suppress that feeling of conviction and the pricking of our consciences, but turn to him in faith and submit to him in humility and live our lives under his watchful eye and his powerful, comforting salvation in a way that would free us from our fear of everything else because nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us then from his love. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.